Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Before I launch into time travel, uh, something I like to do, as a writer, I get sent copies of my books um, in various languages, which are practically no use to me because I don't speak those languages. So apart from keeping one as a trophy, as it were, uh, I try to give away the spares. So just on the off chance, have we we got any German speakers in the audience? Yes, we have a German speaker. Sorry, you're beaten to it, I'm afraid, at the back there. And ever so slightly more unlikely, but do we have any Japanese speakers? Was that? Oh, we do. Excellent. A double giveaway. There we go. Okay. So the topic is time travel, and as you heard there in the introduction, uh, the surprising thing about it is there is nothing technically in the laws of physics that prevent it. Although we tend to think of time travel as fiction. If you, if you mention time machines, the first thing you typically think of is something like Doctor Who or Back to the Future or, uh, of course, H.G. Wells's great original. Uh, but time travel isn't just a story, and it's happening all the time. Uh, now, when I say that, I sometimes worry that people are going to run away thinking I'm a bit of a loony. Uh, I'm not suggesting there are time machines popping up all over the place, but rather on a natural scale, which is a very small scale. It does happen all the time, as we'll discover. Uh, but one of the problems of talking about time travel is that inevitably we ought really to know what time is to be able to do time travel. And the fact is, frankly, we don't know, even if time exists, certainly not what it is. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo, back in the 4th century, made a rather nice remark about time travel. He said, uh, oh, time rather, not time travel. What is time? Who can explain this easily and briefly? Who can comprehend this in thought to articulate the answering words? Yet what do we speak of in our familiar, everyday conversation more than of time? We surely know what we mean when we speak of it. We also know what's meant when we hear someone else talking about it. What then is time? Provided no one asks me, I know. But if I want to explain it to an inquirer, I do not know. Uh, I I think that's fascinating fascinating apart from anything else. I think we tend to think of an obsession with time as a modern thing. And here's somebody 1,600 years ago saying one of the main topics of conversation was time. Uh, So it's not exactly a new subject. Uh, But... Why should I refer to a historical bishop when we've got lots of good scientists these days to help us? The fact is most people do because the scientists aren't helping us anymore. Um, If you read um, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, which I have done so you don't have to, um, uh, the fact is you can go through it from cover to cover and even though he explicitly says early on that he's going to cover what is the nature of time, at no point in the book does he mention what time is or how it works. He does refer to the relationship between time and space and various other things that we'll come across later, but he certainly never says what time is. Now, Einstein, uh, who's going to crop up a lot tonight, but don't worry too much, there's uh, no advanced mathematics required. Uh, Einstein, I guess, gave us a picture of time as a sort of fourth dimension, uh, and with um, a colleague, Minkowski, came up with this concept of space-time. Space and time merged together as a single entity. So you've got the three physical dimensions of space we're very familiar with, and the idea is effectively that there's a fourth dimension of some kind, possibly, if you like, at th- uh, right angles to all the other three, that it, it is time. Uh, certainly the sort of idea that H.G. Wells was working with when he wrote The Time Machine, uh, actually about ten years before uh, Einstein first came up, 
with his ideas on, on the area. Uh, H.E. Wells wrote, uh, his, his time traveller said in the book, uh, any real body must have extension in four directions. It must have length, breadth, thickness, and duration. There are, these are really four dimensions, three of which we call the planes of space and a fourth time. There is, however, a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter. But actually, space-time is, is rather more complicated than just having a fourth dimension like the space ones that somehow we move through at the rate of a second per second, whatever moving at a second per second means. It's actually meaningless when you think about it. And in fact, a lot of physicists will tell you they consider that time doesn't really exist at all as something that moves or changes. Um, one of the pictures they use of the universe is what they call a block universe, where if you like, if you think of the three dimensions of space, there's also a fourth dimension. It's just there. Uh, past, present, future are all just there. It, there is no movement. Um, but it's not particularly helpful when it comes to trying to understand what's going on. So I'm afraid I'm not going to actually be able to enlighten you any more than Stephen Hawking could, not surprisingly, um, about what time is. But I can certainly pick up on the aspect of whether or not time travel is possible. In fact, funnily enough, uh, Professor Hawking did at one point say time travel wasn't possible, he believed, because otherwise, where are all the visitors turning up in their time machines? Uh, he actually retracted that a little later, uh, because it was actually quite a silly thing to say. Uh, but he did come up with that theory. And um, certainly a lot of people have looked out for them. Uh, don't know why, but 2005 was a great year for trying to spot time travellers. Uh, because at MIT in America, they put on a conference for time travellers. And the idea was, you know, everybody knows about it. It happened at a particular place, a particular date and time. Uh, so the travellers were supposed to come back from the future and attend this conference. Unfortunately, no um, certified time travellers turned up. There were one or two slightly certifiable time travellers, but no certified one. Um, I don't know what it was about 2005, but actually there were two separate things of this ilk. Uh, because at Perth in Australia, they also put up a plaque. I, I don't know if it's still there, because it obviously didn't work. Uh, but they put up a plaque saying, come to this point at this date in 2005 if you're a time traveller. And again, nobody arrived. So we have to ask, you know, if it really does exist, where are they all? Uh, and the answer is, frankly, we wouldn't expect them to be here if it, there were time travellers. Uh, and the simple reason is that we only know of one possible way, as yet, of travelling backwards in time. It, as we'll, I'll get onto it a bit later, the detail. Uh, but the way it works means we would not expect to see any time travellers now. Uh, and I can il illustrate use this using my very high-tech uh, piece of equipment, my cardboard box of time, uh, which you can tell is a cardboard box of time because it has a blue flashing light. Um, and what you've got to imagine is that once I've set off my cardboard box of time, what it does is effectively freeze time inside it. So time's running very slowly inside that box. And I'm going to set it up now, go away, and come back in a year's time. So here we are in a year's time, imagine. Uh, so it's 2015, but inside that box, time has been going very, very slowly. So inside that box, it's still June 2014. And if I can find some way to get into the world of that box, then I can travel back in time to June 2014. But what I can't do, what I can't ever do, um, is actually use this box to travel back and see the dinosaurs or some amazing thing in history. It can never get back further than the point when I first set it up. And the only mechanism we know that should enable you to travel backwards in time has that limitation. 
it's about making time run slowly. And because of that, you can only ever get back at the absolute maximum to the point where the time machine was first constructed. And assuming nobody has built a time machine yet, the fact is nobody can come back to now. They can only come back to some point in the future when somebody did actually build one. So actually, it's not a surprise at all that they haven't turned up. But before we get on to backward time travel, which I guess is the most exciting bit of time travel, we do need to talk about travelling forwards in time. Because one of the things fiction always gets wrong is that forwards and backwards time travel are totally different things. Totally different. Going forwards is much, much easier than going backwards. In fact, we can all do it. Hang on. Yep, we're in the future. And hang on. A couple more seconds in the future. We're, We're getting there all the time. Now, I admit, it's a very slow form of time travel, and it's not one you know, that anybody can get very excited about. Uh, so we need to speed it up a bit. But that also is possible. And it happens all the time, thanks to uh, the concept of special relativity, which Einstein dreamed up in an amazing year in 1905. Uh, it was before he was a professional scientist. He was working uh, as a patent clerk in Bern in Switzerland. And in his spare time, he did a bit of science Uh, and he came up with four key papers, one of which won him the Nobel Prize, uh, and another, that was the one basically that set up quantum theory, but uh, another of which was the one that uh, developed the idea of special relativity. And what it was based on was a strange property of light. Einstein was very interested in light, Um, and thinking about it, he realised that it was different from everything else that we experience Uh, And to see why, we need to think a little bit about relativity. Um, And relativity, by the way, nothing to do with Einstein per se. Galileo came up with the basics of relativity. Uh, Einstein built on it, the special relativity and general relativity, which we'll come on to. But relativity is essentially saying when two things are moving, you have to consider what they are moving with respect to. So, for instance, if you've got two cars, each going at 50 miles an hour towards each other, they hit each other at 100 miles an hour. If you've got two cars going in the same direction at 50 miles an hour, as far as one car is concerned, the other one isn't moving. If you're careful, you can step from one to the other, no problem, because as far as this car is concerned, that car isn't moving at all. And we can see this on a larger scale. If you think of yourselves, at the moment, you would probably say you're not moving an awful lot. I mean, yes, perhaps fiddling about a bit, twitching a bit, but the fact is, you're not going anywhere. But that's only relative to this building. If you look at yourself relative, say, to the Andromeda galaxy, our nearest neighbour as a galaxy, you're moving at many thousands of miles per second. It's all relative. And that's all relativity is, is realising that before you say how fast something's going, you have to know what it's moving with respect to. And that was what Einstein realised was a bit of a problem when you came to light. Uh, Because a few years earlier, the Scottish scientist James Clark Maxwell had realised that light was an interaction of electricity and magnetism. Because if you move an electrical current, it produces magnetism. If you move a magnet, it produces electricity. And he realised if you had a bit of electricity moving at just the right speed to generate magnetism that was moving just at the right speed to generate electricity, it could carry on sort of holding itself up by its own bootstraps. It could just keep going. And that's what light is, effectively. It's a a sort of self-generating electrical magnetic -magnetic, uh, process. Uh, And that's only all very well... But it only works at one speed, and that's the speed of light. That's why light basically can only go at the speed of light, which, which I admitted is different in different mediums, but say in space is one particular speed, about 186,000 miles a second. That's the only speed at which that process can work. 
Um, and Einstein, according to legend, was sitting in a park one day, sunny day, eyes half closed, sunbeams filtering through his eyelashes. And he was thinking about these little motes, these beams of light. Uh, and he imagined riding alongside one. So just like these two cars, both going at the same speed, he thought of himself riding alongside a beam of light. As far as he's concerned, the light isn't moving. But if light isn't moving, it doesn't exist. It has to be going at 186,000 miles per second uh, in a vacuum, or it doesn't exist. And so he deduced that light was just different to anything else we know, anything else we experience, that however you move with respect to it, it always goes at the same speed. So you can travel towards a beam of light as fast as you like, um, and it will still come towards you at exactly 186,000 miles a second. You can travel away from it as fast as you like. It'll still come towards you at the same speed. And once you plug this into the basic equations of motion and start thinking about what's going to happen, some really weird things come out of it. This is where we get into special relativity. And the weird things are essentially three. One is that the uh, mass of a moving object increases. One is that a moving object actually gets uh, sort of squashed up flatter and flatter in the direction of its motion. Um, and the third thing is that time slows down for a moving object. Now, it's a very small effect unless you're moving very quickly. But it does happen. Anything that moves, as far as the things it's moving with respect to, if you see what I mean, so the world around it, as far as the world around it's concerned, the thing that's moving, the time on that thing will run slowly. So, for instance, if you catch a plane across the Atlantic uh, every year for, uh, sorry, once, once a week for, for 40 years, so um, uh, about 2,000 times, you will move about a thousandth of a second into the future. Now, just to be clear why you're moving into the future, bear in mind that the thing that's moving, as far as the world around is concerned, time's running slowly. Uh, so if we imagine this in a large scale, if it was going really quickly, so time was running very slowly for that thing, then when it came back to the world around it, it's moved into the future of the world around it. So that's the way to get into the future. You basically move quickly away from and then back to the thing, you, the place you want to be in the future of. So basically you want to get into the future of here, the Earth, you fly off in a spaceship at high speed, come back, and you will find you have moved into the future. Um, and I ought to say this isn't just theory. Uh, it's been tested uh, by doing things like flying atomic clocks around the world, which are so accurate that you can actually measure this happening. And in our best ever time machine so far is the probe called Voyager 1. I don't know if any of you, any of you remember Voyager 1. It set off, I think, in the 1970s and took some amazing photographs of, of Jupiter and Saturn as it, as it went out. And it's still heading out into space. It's at about the edge of the solar system now. Um, and that, basically, just because it has been going for so long at a high speed, has now moved about 1.1 seconds into the future. So that's, that's our best time machine to date. Not brilliant, but it exists. Uh, but to get a better feel for what's going on, uh, scientists usually use something called the Twins Paradox, uh, which can demonstrate just how dramatic this could be if you could go fast enough. And the suggestion is we get ourselves a pair of twins, uh, that I'll call Carl and Carla. We'll stick Carla in the spaceship. She'll go off at high speed, near the speed of light, very quickly, and fly off for a few years. And as far as she's concerned, say her journey's been 10 years. So she comes back, she's 35. They started off 25 uh, but remember, time runs very slowly for her if she's going to close to the speed of light. So when she comes back, she finds it's her brother's 75th birthday. So basically, you've got a pair of twins, one who's 75 and one who's 35. Because the one that's been off in the spaceship, time has run very slowly for them. 
now, if you're really, really clever, you'll have spotted there's a potential flaw in this because relativity, generally speaking, is, is symmetrical. So basically, here she is going off in a spaceship and if her brother had amazing binoculars and could watch the spaceship through these binoculars, he would see the t clocks running very slowly on that spaceship. So the time is running slowly for her. But if you think of her viewpoint, she's sitting on a spaceship that, as far as she's concerned, isn't moving. What she sees is the Earth flying away at high speed. And if she had amazing binoculars, she would see clocks on the Earth running very slowly. It's symmetrical. And so you might wonder, how come she doesn't age much, her brother ages a lot? And the thing is that it's not actually symmetrical because something different happens to her than happens to her brother. And that's what, if you like, resets the clocks. Because what the spaceship has to do is start off from the Earth, it accelerates up to very high speed, gets to the other end of its journey where it's going to turn around, it has to slow down to a stop, turn around, or go around a big curve, which is the same, and accelerate back up to speed, come back to the Earth and slow down again. So it's experienced acceleration. And as soon as you do that, you effectively reset the clocks as far as relativity is concerned. She's had something happen to her that didn't happen to the Earth, and that's why... It's not symmetrical. As I said, this has been tested over and over. It's not just a guess. It actually does work, but we've only done it on very small scales. But the fact is, if you move quickly, you will move into the future. The faster you go, the quicker you go into the future. So if you could get really close to the speed of light, you could go tens of years into the future, hundreds of years into the future. No way of getting back yet, but the fact is you can make that journey in principle. But... There's a big price tag. It's not something you do easily because it takes an awful lot of energy to get up to that kind of speed. We can push things up to that kind of speed. Uh, if you go along to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, they have particles going around that thing at 99.9999% of the speed of light. Very, very close to the speed of light indeed. But those are tiny, weeny little particles. To do it with something sizable like a spaceship takes a whole lot more energy. Um, and energy scientists measure in joules, a uh, very simple unit. Basically, if you imagine something like a 100-watt bulb, you run it for one second, that's 100 joules. That's how much energy it uses in a second. Um, and if you think of a spaceship weighing maybe 100 tonnes, which is about the weight space shuttles used to be, just to get a feel for the sort of weight, um, you can work out how many joules it would take to get that spaceship up to, say, 90% of the speed of light, which is the sort of speed you really need for time travel. And it would take about 10,000 billion billion joules. Now, as a number, that means nothing to me. I have to say, 10,000 billion billion joules, what, what is that? I've no idea. Uh, but I would say, just to illustrate how much of a problem is, it is that the fastest a human being has ever been so far was on Apollo 10. Um, and rather than travelling at 90% of the speed of light... They actually travelled at 0.0037 of a percent of the speed of light. 0.0037. So, you know, you've got quite a big factor to catch up to get up to my 90% of speed of light using these 10,000 billion billion joules. Now, I think a useful way of getting a feel for how much energy that is is to think, OK, what happens if we take all the power stations in the UK and use those to power our time ship? Uh, they could do that, but you would have to take the output of all the power stations in the UK for 15,000 years to produce that much energy. That's how much energy it is. It's quite a lot. Um, and you'd also need a very long extension cable to uh, plug in your spaceship. So it's probably not the best way to do it. Uh, when it comes to real spaceships, uh, the most powerful spaceship that have ever been so far uh, were, were the Saturn V rockets used 
on the Apollo uh, missions. And those actually, for a very brief period of time, a few seconds, produced more energy than all the power stations in the UK. Quite amazing. But it's very, very brief. And even those would have to run for more than 3,000 years to go to get up to 90% of the speed of light. In practice, they could run for a few seconds. Uh, so although travelling in forward in time is simple, we do it all the time, anything that moves does it, to make it worthwhile, to make it a real journey into the future, takes a huge amount of energy. And we have to think of how can we get that much energy. Um, if you wanted to power your spaceship using petrol, I'm not quite sure why you would, but if you did, I've worked it out, it would take about 60 billion tonnes of petrol to produce that much energy. But of course, then you'd have to carry 60 billion tonnes. So your spaceship wouldn't weigh 100 tonnes, it would weigh 60 billion tonnes, which would then take billions and billions more tonnes of petrol. You just couldn't do it. You need a more compact form of energy. And luckily, there is a more compact form than uh, petrol, not totally surprising. Uh, what you really need is a bit of antimatter. Um, any fans of Star Trek will know this is how you power the USS Enterprise, so it's bound to be the right thing to go for. Uh, and of course the Enterprise is fictional, the way the Enterprise uses antimatter is fictional, but antimatter itself exists. Um, another experiment has uh, nothing to do with the Large Hadron Collider, produces antimatter every year, um, quite a lot in antimatter terms. And the amazing thing about antimatter is it's basically just like ordinary stuff, but all the particles in it have the opposite charge. So you've probably heard of electrons, uh, electrically charged particles that around, fly around the outside of an atom. They're negatively charged. The antimatter equivalent in an electron is a positron, which is positively charged. And the interesting thing is if you get a piece of ordinary matter and a piece of antimatter and bring them together, they convert into pure energy. And matter holds a lot of energy. You've probably heard Einstein's most famous equation, E equals mc squared, and that's basically saying the energy in stuff, the energy in matter, the E bit, is equal to how much mass there is times the square of the speed of light, which is a very big number. So you get a huge amount of energy out of a small amount of antimatter. And you would only need about 31 tonnes of antimatter fuel in order to get your ship up to 90% of the speed of light, and it's perfectly possible to carry 30 tonnes of fuel. That's no problem at all. So we're almost there. We know we can power it with antimatter. The only teensy-weensy problem we now have is getting enough antimatter. As I mentioned, CERN produces more than anywhere else uh, in the world, but if, in fact, if you put the whole production of antimatter in the world together, they make about a millionth of a gram a year at the moment, and we need 30 tonnes. So we've got a way to go. But, as an engineer would say, it's just a practical problem. You know, the fact is, it's possible, it's just not doable right yet now. We know how to do it, we just don't know how to do it. So we know them, what we ought to do, but we don't know how to make it happen yet, to a sufficient degree. Um, there are other possible ways around it, or at least ways to help, so you wouldn't need as much antimatter. Uh, and one way is to find some way to power a ship without carrying the fuel at all. Because the real problem spaceships have, it's why they drop bits off and have those, these huge fuel tanks and all that kind of thing, is actually get carrying the fuel itself. The fuel has so much mass. Um, so one thing that's been suggested, for instance, is you could attach sails to a spaceship. And uh, this isn't quite as uh, ridiculous as it sounds. Uh, if you have huge, very light sails, uh, basically the sun is pushing out light and particles and those will actually push against the sails and will give you a bit of pressure moving the spaceship away from the sun. That will help accelerate it. 
Uh, if you get some really big lasers and point them at it, that light will also help push it and you can get it going a little bit faster. So you can encourage things on a little bit without fuel, but that's en not enough to get you going. Um, so one final suggestion that, uh, that some people have come up with is why don't you just pick up the fuel as you go along? Because the most common thing in the universe is hydrogen. Hydrogen's a pretty good fuel, especially if you use hydrogen fusion uh, as a way of uh, getting energy out of it. There's loads of hydrogen out there in space. All you've got to do is scoop it up as you go along and use it. And there was a wonderful sort of science fiction sounding idea called the Bussard Ramjet that was dreamed up in the 1960s. And the idea was that basically you had these huge scoops. They'd actually have to be electromagnetic because they'd have to be hundreds of miles across. They'd be too big to be physical. Um, and that what they do is pull in charged hydrogen particles into it, the, the ship. You get the ship going fairly fast to start with, enough so going fast enough that the, the hydrogen that it goes in gets compressed more and more together. And if you can compress it enough, you end up with it fusing. This is a reaction that powers the sun, produces huge amount of energy, not, not as much as antimatter, but a good amount. But bearing in mind you're not having to carry the fuel. In practice, it probably wouldn't work. Um, there are a couple of technical problems with it. One being we don't think there's enough hydrogen out there. It's, it's not dense enough. And the other being, as yet, producing energy from fusion is not easy to do. I knew he was going, by the way. He's, he's not got totally fed up yet. Um, it's not easy to do. It's something we've been trying to do since the 1950s because hydrogen fusion would be a great way to generate energy. Uh, it generates energy more efficiently than... Uh, nuclear power stations, but doesn't have all the nuclear waste. It uses something much more easily available as fuel. It generally is a great idea, and we're still working on it, but the fact is it's very difficult to do in a thing the size of a power station, and they're wanting to do it in a rocket motor. So it's a way off, again. But again, in principle, the, the, the possibilities are there. Uh, the last point I want to make about that before we think about going into the past is you also have to worry a little bit about navigation. Because if you can get up to such a high speed, uh, a good percentage of the speed of light, you're passing things pretty quickly. You know, it's not just a matter of going down the, the M4 at 70 miles an hour. You know, we're talking of traveling at, say, 150,000 miles a second or something like that. That's pretty quick. Uh, and because of that, avoiding things could be fairly difficult. Uh, you can get away with probably, you could avoid all the obvious really big things because you know where they are and you can predict where they are and miss them. But the problem really is with things like dust. It, it, you just can't avoid dust. Uh, and at that speed, dust will go straight through you. Uh, if it does hit you, it will generate hard radiation. It's not a healthy thing to do. So you'll have to generate some sort of shields that keeps things away from you. So, you know, there's lots of technical advances required to make it work. But it still is just an engineering problem and that the practicalities on a small scale aren't too bad. Uh, getting into the past is a whole different ball game. Uh, a theoretical physicist, though, will still tell you it is still just a matter of engineering. It's just the engineering is on a scale that makes that look trivial. I mean, that's Meccano set stuff compared with the engineering we need to get into the past. Uh, there are a couple of ways you can think of doing it. Uh, the two most obvious ways, one is you get yourself a wormhole. Now, a wormhole is basically uh, a sort of tear in space of time. It's a, uh, the idea is it links two points in space of time and sort of takes a shortcut through another dimension, effectively linking those two points. They, they theoretically could exist. Um, and if you fly through that wormhole, well, if you get one of the ends of the wormhole into the past, which there is a way of doing, then if you fly to that through that wormhole, you will travel into the past. 
but there are tiny problems with that. One is wormholes are totally theoretical. Nobody's ever seen one. We don't know if it's possible to make one. If you could make one, theory says that as soon as anything tried to travel through it, it would collapse. And the only way you could stop it from collapsing is having negative energy. We don't really know what negative energy is, but if it does exist... Um, then yes, it might just about help us to do that. Incidentally, you also need negative energy to make a warp drive if you want to go and build yourself your enterprise. So practically speaking, that's probably the hardest of the two, or the harder of the two possibilities. Uh, the other is, in a sense, simpler. Uh, it's just the engineering feat required is a bit mind-boggling. What the recipe says here is take yourself about 10 neutron stars... Um, make them into a cylinder, spin them around very quickly, and if you fly around that cylinder, it will pull you back in time. Um, and to an extent, we're closer to that one because we know where there are thousands of neutron stars, in, even in our own galaxy. There's thousands of them out there, and they're amazing things. And we've heard about neutron stars, but they're essentially stars where the matter has collapsed. Um, normally, atoms, the atoms that make everything around us, us included up, are almost all empty space. If this entire building was, if one atom was the size of this building, the actual stuff in it, the, the nucleus, which is about all really there is in it, would be smaller than the size of a pea. Everything else is basically just empty space. And in a neutron star, all the empty space is gone. You just have the nucleuses. You just have uh, the neutrons as they end up in these stars. And that makes them very dense. So if I actually had a, a spoonful of neutron star material here today, it would weigh about 100 million tonnes. That's how dense they are. And, and these things are out there. Um, so that's the good news. But still, to make your time machine to travel backwards, you would have to cross hundreds of light years of space. And I would point out that, remember I said, Apollo 10 is the fastest a human being's ever been. That would take 27,000 years to cross one light year. And I want you to cross hundreds of light years of space. Uh, you need to get about 10 of these neutron stars, as I say, pull them together. These are stars that weigh uh, more than the sun. Uh, I need you to pull them together into a cylinder. You also, by the way, have to be a little careful when you're doing this, because as you pull them together, their mass will get so compact that they will want to form a black, black hole. They'll try to collapse into a black hole. So somehow you have to keep them in a cylinder and stop them collapsing, spin them around, and then you've got yourself a time machine. Uh, so... Obviously, these are not something. This is not something we're going to do next week, or, or even next century, uh, or frankly, next millennium. Uh, if it is ever possible to do that, we're talking millions of years beyond the current technology. Although this, yeah, it is just an engineering problem, it's a very hard engineering problem. Uh, but there is one man who thinks you can do it on the desktop, uh, and he actually isn't uh, just uh, somebody who drinks a lot of cider and has generally got these ideas from nowhere. The fact is, uh, he's a physics professor. Um, his name's Ronald Mallet, and he was 10 when his father died. And um, as he grew up, he got very interested in science fiction, very excited by science fiction, read The Time Machine, um, and thought, that's what I've got to do. I need to build a time machine so I can go back in time and warn my father uh, that he's going to have a heart attack and so he can take uh, the appropriate action. Um, and so what he set out to do very deliberately was say, to say, what do I need to do to learn the stuff I would need to build a time machine? And he became a professor of physics. Now, to be fair, very early on, he realised it was not going to be possible to go back because he knew about the cardboard box of time. He knew that he couldn't go back, even if he did build a time machine, to any point before 
the machine was first built. But even so, it had started him off. It had started him driving in this direction, and he's still at it. Um, he was born in 1945, so uh, next year he's 70, uh, but he's still going, uh, and he still has some hopes. He has the design for a desktop machine. Um, he's trying to get money together to get it built. Um, and there's a sort of possibility it could work. And it's based on uh, Newton's other uh, Newton, Einstein's other great piece of work, general relativity, that describes how gravity works. And general relativity is how these things like the wormhole in space and the, the neutron star cylinder would generate a time machine. And similarly, he's thought of a way to do it on a small scale. Uh, and it works on a peculiarity of general relativity that basically says that moving things that have mass generate a bit of sideways gravity, a little peculiar extra bit of gravity. And if you spin that around, what it does is pull space and time with it. Because what gravity is, is according to general relativity, is a warp, a twist in space and time. And the idea is, if you imagine something like a jar of honey, and you stick a big spoon in it and start spinning the spoon around, the honey will start following the spoon. And what frame dragging says is if you get a massive body and spin it around, hence the cylinder with neutron stars, what it will do is drag space and time around with it. And this has been demonstrated, again, on a very small scale. It's been shown to exist. Uh, and what he thinks is he can do this on the desktop using lasers, because rather oddly, light itself also has this effect. So if you spin beams of light around, it will actually drag space and time with it. He's a bit of a laser expert, and his idea is to build a, a tower of thousands of lasers all going around in circles. And the theory is that something passing through the middle would actually travel backwards in time. It would only travel a very small distance, millionth of a second or so, but it would, in principle, do it, and it could demonstrate the idea. Um, now, in a movie, in a film, uh, if he had done this, he would actually go back at some point to see his father. I say it's not going to happen. He realised that very early on. Um, but in principle, there may be something there. There may be a mechanism that we could get to quicker uh, than these ideas involving vast engineering feats. Just to finish off, what I want to do is think a little bit about what would happen if you could do it. So if you did manage to make Mallet's machine or some other machine, set it up, leaving, leave it running long enough that you could go back a reasonable distance in time, because bear in mind, you can, all you can do is slow time down. So what you need to do is slow time down and wait, and then you should be able to get back into the past. Uh, and that's where the paradoxes of time start appearing uh, where time travel starts getting rather exciting. I just want to briefly mention two of these. You're probably familiar with them already, but it's worth just thinking briefly about them. Uh, one's called the grandfather paradox. I must apologise immediately to any grandfathers in the audience because this isn't very good for grandfathers. Uh, the idea is essentially... Uh, I don't know why it's grandfathers rather than fathers, actually. Somebody obviously had it in for their granddad. Uh, the idea is that you get yourself a time machine, you go back in time and you kill your grandfather, sorry, before... You were uh, before you were your parents were born, uh, before you whoever mother or father is born. So your grandfather's dead. Your parent your parents aren't born. You aren't born. If you aren't born, you couldn't have gone back. If you couldn't go back, then the person's still alive. So you could go back. So you go back and shoot them. But if that's the case, you couldn't go back. And you get into this sort of mental loop of possibilities. Uh, you get into a sort of time loop of, of possibility. Uh, just to get a, uh, a rather more pre pleasant example. Um, I have a book here called How to Build a Time Machine, which uh, this is a small bits of, really. There's a lot more in there. Um, now, I'm a lazy person, 
So if I built myself a time machine, what would be ideal is if the me in the future got a hold of a copy of this book, put it in the time machine, and sent it back to me before I wrote it. Now all I've got to do is copy it out, send it to my publisher, they publish it, and we've got a very interesting little paradox. Who wrote the book and when was it written? Because the me in the, just writing the book didn't write it, I just copied it out. The me in the future didn't write it, they just sent it back. Nobody's written this book, it's appeared from nowhere. Um, and that's pretty remarkable. In fact, it's so remarkable that some physicists will tell you it effectively proves that backwards time travel is not actually possible in this kind of form. Uh, there is one very obscure form of backwards time travel you can do that doesn't engage paradoxes, but we won't worry about that now. Forwards time travel, fine. They're very happy with that, but backwards, no. But there are some ways around it. Uh, so some people suggest, for instance, if you did go back in time and kill your grandfather or had that intent, then if you like, the universe would conspire to avoid it happening. So basically, time paradoxes can't happen. Something would happen that would stop you from doing it. Or if you tried to do it, you would end up back in the future again before you set off because you couldn't have set off, so you never set off. Or something like that. That's one possibility. Uh, the other rather more interesting one, which really needs another hour to explain, uh, but is, is based on a, a concept in quantum theory. Um, one of the uh, quantum theories, the, the theory of basically of the very smalls, how things like atoms, electrons, photons of light uh, act. And it has some very strange properties, uh, quantum theory. And some people, to explain those properties, come up with a rather dramatic idea that there are actually many, many parallel universes. And essentially, any time anything happens, so any time an atom decides to do something or whatever, uh, that actually effectively the universe splits. There's one version where one possibility happens, one version where another possibility happens. So basically, you have a universe for every single possibility that every particle could do. This seems incredibly complicated, but it's, they think it's, I, I don't personally like it, but they think it's a useful way to explain some of the peculiarities of quantum theory. And if that's true, it gets you around the whole business, because basically, the idea then is you set off, if you like, from one parallel universe, you kill your grandfather or you get the book from another of these universes, the one where uh, you didn't set off from the future and do it. So both are possible at the same time. It's not a problem if that is a correct interpretation. And in fact, if we ever do build time machines that go backwards, it will be useful to be able to test whether that interpretation of quantum theory is true. But anyway, whether or not Ronald Mallet actually achieves his dream and builds his time machine, the fact remains that time travel is real. Uh, we can do it today, you do it every time you move, uh, just on a scale that is totally unobservable. Uh, but anything that moves really quickly will move into the future. It's perfectly possible, and in principle, it's possible to move into the past. So next time you see a film that has time travel in it, or a TV series or whatever, don't sort of sneer about it as being pure fantasy. There's a little element of truth. They, they usually bend that truth pretty heavily to get the storyline in, but the fact is there's a little element of truth in there. Um, that's really all I wanted to go through today. I'm very happy to take any questions about time travel or, or sort of physics and such in general. Um, I do have a selection of my books uh, here. If anybody would like to take a look afterwards, please do come have a look. I'm selling those at bargain prices um, and happy to sign them and so forth. But also, if you would like to ask a question and don't really want to ask it in front of everybody else because you always feel your own question is one that is a bit embarrassing, feel free to come up afterwards and grab me as well. Very happy to answer any individual questions then. So thank you for your attention and I hope the time didn't go too slowly.
So do we have any questions? Yes. Does anyone? No. Um, I, I guess I'm asking. So, but everyone was wondering if you could um, expand a bit more on what you said about negative energy and wormholes. You said that you think you need negative energy, but you don't even know where you go to work at your business. So how can you, how can you know that you need it? Negative energy is one of these things that theoretical physicists say sort of sort of exists. I mean, in a sense, it does exist. There, there are forms of negative energy. There's something called the Casimir effect, uh, where you, you put two plates, uh, two metal plates, say, parallel to each other, very, very close to each other. They're forced towards each other. Uh, and that's a form of negative energy that's causing that to happen. So it does exist, in a sense. But the thing is, what we don't know is really how to get hold of it and use it to do anything with it. Uh, and also, we only know exa- examples of it on a very small scale. And it's a bit like the, you know, the business of the antimatter. You would need a lot of it to be able to do that. Similarly, um, for uh, uh, NASA, genuinely is working on, a, 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 in theory, on a, a, a warp drive uh, you know, that, that can make you tr- enable you to travel faster than light. Uh, that again uses antimatter, but that at the moment would need, uh, I think the size of a small planet's worth of negative energy to make it work. So again, unless you can bring these scales down to the sort of, at the moment, tiny, tiny scales that we know about, there's not a lot you could do with it. So I was, I was simplifying a little bit to say that, that it doesn't exist. It does exist, but really we don't know how to make it manageably and do anything with it. Have I, questions? have I uh, baffled you into silence? It's always a difficult one, um, and it's something you inevitably think about when you write books about time machines. Um, I'm not sure I would, would want, actually personally want to do either, because the trouble with going forwards is on the whole, uh, chances are you wouldn't be able to come back again, because at the moment... You know, it was going to be much easier to go forwards than go backwards. Uh, I don't really want to get stuck in the future. Although it's kind of interesting to see how things turn out, but you have to think, is that the only possible future or not? Uh, going backwards, I, I guess it's the usual sort of personal things, a bit like Ron Mallet, that, uh, you know, uh, my dad died 30 years ago. I would love to be able to see him again, something like that, I guess. So I guess that would be the winner if it were just as easy as flipping a switch in Doctor Who. But sadly, it's not. Yep. Um, if light is always traveling at the same speed, is there a, a, an idea of what would happen to light if it would go into a black hole? Well, uh, light does go into black holes. Um, everything goes into black holes. That's, a black hole is essentially a star where the matter has become so compressed. Uh, so small that effectively it compresses away to nothing. Uh, so, to, so it's a, a singularity, a point with no real size. And if you get close enough to it, the gravity is so strong. Uh, if you remember, say that gravity warps space and time. Uh, essentially, what happens is if you have any light and say it tries to get out of the black hole, the space is actually curved so much it comes back in. It can't get out. It never gets out. It, it doesn't have any effect on the speed of light. What it does is it, it will shift its energy. So basically it will become more energetic. Um, and basically the, the colour of the light will shift. Um, actually it's slightly confusing because the, the colour of the light will actually 
shift, I, I think, if I'm right in saying, towards the red. But it, it will basically, light will effectively disappear as it comes near the black hole because it's shifted right out of visibility. Um, I don't think that's a dead duck. I think that's the air conditioning, by the way. Um, but uh, there's nothing can change the speed of light apart from the fact that, as I mentioned earlier on, in different mediums, it goes at different speeds. So, for instance, if it goes in glass, it goes slower. Um, if it goes in water, it goes slower, uh, which is why you get effects like re- refraction, where the things appear to bend. You know, you see that thing where you put a pencil into water, it appears to bend. It's basically because the speed of light is differing between the air and the water. It's how, how a lens works uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but there is only one particular speed in any, any medium, and it just can't work at any other speed. Yep. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, something to the effect that I, I know what I'm thinking, but I can't explain it. Could you quote it? Yes, this. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, this was Saint Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century, and he was saying about li- uh, time. Provided no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to an inquirer, I do not know. So basically, we all know sort of what time is, but you've actually tried to explain what time is. You, you just haven't got a clue. And I think that's just as true today as it was in the fourth century. I have to say, I did this talk at a school once, and they, they came out afterwards, and they were really disappointed my caliber box of time actually didn't work. They actually wanted to be able to get into it and go into the past. I'm afraid it is just a, a theoretical demonstration. I ought to point this out now. This is our last um, session of the summer lectures, and we start again 1st of October. So we get to see you all then. Thank you.